Today's thoughts explore words and how I wonder how much the words that we speak and the words that we think influence how we navigate the world. This podcast is a rough around the edges attempt at exploring my mind in hopes that it might inspire you to explore yours. My name is Fontaine and this is Fox in Thought. I reckon I've always loved words, but not in the sense that I need a big vocabulary or I'm trying to impress people with the language I know, but more that I love communicating with people, and words seem to be a pretty important vehicle for that. Words help me be playful, nuanced, understandable. I love that when we give words the things, they take on a dimension of their own. I remember being on a tropical vacation with an ex-boyfriend and his family. Now, I had recently torn the labrum of my left shoulder, and so I was kind of walking around with my arm held tightly to my chest so that it wouldn't fall out of its socket, which it had gotten into the nasty habit of doing. And we were at a world-class surf break. And while many of the others were honing their surf craft, I went to the lee side of the island and I spent hours snorkeling alone. Now, I brought the local fish book, and I made an effort to remember at least one fish per dive. So basically, I would go out, I would see a fish maybe with large eyes and a small mouth, try to come back and find that one immediately, or, you know, one with two black stripes by its rear fin, whatever it was. So I would come back to that fish book and try to put a name to that fish. Now, slowly, I built up my vocabulary to dozens of fish types. I probably know 60 or 80 different types of fish now. Now, honestly, it was a way for me to pass the time, but unknowingly, I actually created a whole new world for myself. So now, if I go scuba diving with other people, and we come up and somebody asks, what did you see? Most people will say, fish. I see long-nosed butterfly fish, Moorish idols, scribbled filefish, batfish, mullets, dozens of type of wrasse, the Australi- Australasian snapper, fusilier, trevally, whatever it is. But to be honest, I was most proud when I learned not just their names, but how to actually identify the family of fish, of a fish that I had never seen before. Since that was when I really knew that I knew. It kind of reminded me actually of when I took art history class in college. I took it my freshman year of college and my best friend took it his senior year of high school. And the way that I learned it at Stanford, ironically, was uh, basically I was shown a bunch of different images of artworks and I needed to memorize the name of the artist and the year that it was uh, created. Uh, He, on the other hand, in his AP art history class, he had to learn fundamentally about the movement or about the style of a creator. And so he often would be shown uh, images, pieces of art he had never been seen, he had never seen before. And he could effectively deduce certainly where it came from, when it came from, and often who created it. And that was because he learned the underlying principles of how to identify those things rather than just repeating a memorized list. Now, words are power, and names are power. So if somebody says my name in passing, I can turn my head, and they have a subtle power over me. And if somebody knows my name, 
and I don't know their name, there's a bit of a discrepancy in power. I've also noticed that when we name groups or communities, they really take a form outside of ourselves. So for example, my girl cousins call ourselves the Beckham Babes, my share house, Shepherd's Pride, the college trio, Purd Pilots, my Google Pals, Bit Girls, my Americans in Australia, the Rose Gang. And by giving the group a name, it takes form in the world. It creates a space which we belong to. It gives us that sense of stability that we love and that folks often overlook. And the same naturally applies to when we name the houses that we live in, whether it's Lejay, Sea Anchor, Fern Canyon, the Foxhole, the Three-Pronged Palace. Each one of those terms, while perhaps meaningless to you, triggers a host of memories and feelings for me. Now, when we give things labels, we arrive at a joint understanding of what that thing is. So maybe the key purpose of words is actually joint understanding. Often, in our team meetings at work, I'll ask us to define terms up front so that we can actually ensure that we have a common understanding. What horrifies me is when I see people using terms that they seem to have that seem to be like the right words to use without actually understanding what they mean. People probably do this in an effort to prove that they're smart or that they're relevant. And it comes up a lot when people use terms like AI or machine learning, iterate, innovate, data-driven, or MVP in my field. To be honest, this drives me crazy because it's almost like a status card to use one of those words. And if you stop to question the understanding of the term, it's seen as irrelevant or even offensive. So what happens is often we're pretending that we're communicating, but we're actually not, which honestly feels like the most dangerous form of communication. So often when we're communicating with others, we actually just spray our words, but we never bother to ensure that people are listening to them or even understanding. One of the best ways to see this naturally is to look at other people's body language if you want to try to understand whether or not they're understanding you, right? It's head nodding, it's facial expressions. Obviously, questions are great since they indicate people are engaged enough to be curious. Now, this is even harder online. I'm just reflecting on the last couple of weeks, been taking a ton of video calls, and it's so interesting to try to capture all those like little nuanced pieces of feedback that we rely on so much in our communication. So even I've noticed, noticed so many differences between the three platforms I've been re using recently around um, uh, conference, video conferencing. So been using FaceTime, been using Google Hangouts, been using Zoom. And um, one of the, I guess, one of the variables I've really been noticing is basically how easily you can read other people's body language when you're talking. So I think probably Google Hangouts is the worst one at this. And the one, the thing that they do, which I find really frustrating, is they'll actually, if there's 10 people on a call, they'll hide maybe three or four of the people and just let you see six of the people. Now I understand why they're doing this. They're trying to actually uh, make those six people's faces bigger, um, but it means that I can't see half the people's faces on the call. 
um, which makes it quite a, a weird dynamic. Um, FaceTime, FaceTimes is interesting. I feel like FaceTime's good for one-on-one communication, but when we were doing some of our family calls, like it has these really nice animations where when you're talking, your face gets bigger. Um, but it just, I feel like is a little bit distracting. It's almost more there for artistry rather than actual like practical application. And Zoom is probably the best one at this because it tries to, from what I can tell, like really keep people's faces equal sized, which creates more of that equitable environment in the communication itself. And if you think about other forms of online communication, I mean, social media is one of the best examples of this. You're just like spraying information to an audience and you really don't know if they understand you or even if they're listening to you. Honestly, the closest thing to feedback that we get is likes. And that's philosophically a completely different beast. A like means, do people like what I'm saying? It does not mean, do people understand what I mean? I regularly understand what people mean, but I don't like what they're saying. And there's definitely no way to distinguish between that. Now, over the last few weeks, there were two terms which were born in what felt like overnight. Overnight, the viral communication methods birthed these two new concepts. Quick aside, isn't it interesting how we are communicating about a virus through viral communication methods? That word, viral, is our savior and our threat. Anyways, those two terms. The two new birthly terms are flattening the curve and, you guessed it, social distancing. So the first is our objective to flatten the curve. And that it evokes a visual graph, makes it accessible, and the fact that it harkens to science and math makes it trustable. And so pretty quickly we jumped onto that language. Now the second term is our objective, social distancing. A term I had never heard before, and frankly, now it's all I hear. I'm so curious who was the first person to coin that language. And how ironic that a word, which is intended to mean stay away from other humans, has spread so rapidly through social mechanisms. And it has spawned new words, including the stay home campaign. Kind of, I guess, extending on this, I've been thinking a lot about basically who says the word really matters. So if we take a moment to cast our minds back to pre-pandemic times and we explore, explore the word safe. Now I'm deeply aware of the benefit of creating an environment where people feel safe in order to be themselves or express any sort of creativity. In fact, I feel like that's one of my main purposes in life. I'm always trying to create spaces which feel warm and welcoming so that other people feel comfortable since I've realized my level of comfort is often uh, based on how comfortable people are around me. And something about, so I understand the benefits of creating a, a space which feels safe, but something about the word itself, the word safe actually triggers me. It's almost as if the environment changes as soon as somebody uses that word. So the other day in a meeting, question was asked, 
to the attendees that were on my team. And there had been about a 10 second silence. And then one of the leaders said, come on guys, this is a safe space. Now, obviously that was well intended, but that definitely shut me down immediately. And I bet other people felt similarly. But if somebody says, I feel safe here, or I feel safe with you, it's a different vibe. I'm going to guess it probably comes back to those power dynamics. If somebody who's in a position of power says it, it has the opposite effect. But somebody in a low power position is the one who really gets to express how they feel. Now, extending from that notion of a safe space, I have beef with the word victim. In particular, who uses the word? We may call ourselves victims of some situation, or, some, or we could call somebody else a victim. But I'm always wary of who's the first person who used the term in a given scenario. If I share a bizarre sexual experience or a weird gendered moment at work, and somebody says, you're a victim, then do I become a victim? Is it when they call me a victim that I become a victim? Or is it when I decide to call myself a victim? And what does calling myself a victim do to how I actually perceive myself in the world? Do I render myself powerless when I label myself that? There are so many words that I feel scared to use in the public realm for fear of shame, since that's what our world seems to be really good at these days, shaming one another. I think that's one of the challenges we've seen in the last five to 10 years around a lot of the issues in the liberal sphere. So when we discuss things like inequality and race or gender, or frankly, even the environment, the language is often very aggressive or shamey, and that makes it hard for people to actually engage in the conversation, so they just shut down because they're too scared to get hurt. Let's take feminism. Now, some of my friends identify as raging feminists, and even that language is immediately confronting. It's nearly impossible to engage with a rageful energy in any context, so their ideas are often left unresponded to. And that ultimately is because a lot of people are too scared to engage with them, which then makes those raging feminists even more angry. And it's ironic because it's their delivery and not their content that's making their own situation much worse. Now, expanding on feminism, I think there are patterns of differences between males and females. How we communicate, what we value, competition levels, etc. But I'm way too scared to vocalize that in my work, largely because those around me would be too scared to engage with the conversation. I also realize that it's too limiting to reduce people to just male or female, which is why I've started exploring calling things masculine and feminine as this expands the definition to maybe allowing men to express feminine characteristics and vice versa. In fact, I consider myself a pretty masculine female. My dad has always told me that I think like a man. So I often wonder, how do we engage in conversations in areas that have supercharged language when it comes to talking about things like race and gender? Now, one thing I've been trying to do is to focus not on what we look like, but rather to focus on what we do. This is a rough principle I've been developing, effectively focus on behavior rather than appearance. 
Now, many words we use today focus on what we look like from the outside. Black, white, short, female, smart, Jewish, French, etc. I found that it is when we use adjectives like this that people get the most triggered. And what is intended as an exploratory conversation might actually backfire. But if we use nouns instead of adjectives and we put them in prepositional phrases, we might actually unlock a new set of conversations. So rather than he's French, I can say he is from France or even he was born in France. Instead of he's black, I could say his mom is from Nigeria, but he was born in Chicago. It's precise and it allows for less misinterpretation. So if I use an adjective like he's French, I might be greeted with the response, what are you trying to say about being French? Now, another reframing I've been exploring is around when we use self-awareness in our language. So for example, I can say the world is flat and you and probably most listeners would think that is wrong. But if I say, I think the world is flat, you can't contest that. You don't know what my mind produces beyond what I tell you. So I often prepend ideas with a humble, I think, or I wonder, in a way to personalize what I'm saying to my own experience. Now, of course, this often backfires at work when other people talk in absolutes. And if I say something like, I think we should do this, folks might respond with, we're not interested in opinions, we run off facts, which ironically is an opinion. Nevertheless, I value humility over power for power's sake, so I stick to my self-aware language. Now, those who are defining the words are the ones who are shaping the world. What words or terms are sticking out to you right now? Where do you think they came from? And what exactly do they mean?